Father in heaven, Father, we are thankful that we can be here tonight. We know that we're two or more gathered. You're in our midst to guide us, to teach us. And Father, in the context of what we're looking at last night and tonight, to prepare us for the times that we're living in and the times just ahead. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight tonight. For I ask it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Now last night we started out, the theme is the everlasting gospel, and we started talking about the three angels' messages of Revelation chapter 14. And I believe, I put a slide up here tonight, that we looked at last night from the ninth volume of the testimonies, and I'm not giving you everything we looked at last night, but this summarizes it. It says here, in a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. I don't even want to try to give you the significance of that, but I'm asking the Holy Spirit that he will lay the significance of that statement on your heart and mind right now. The last warning message for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angels' messages. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. Nothing else. This is from the pen of inspiration. This is not the opinion of Mark Howard, the pastor, or of some theology professor or anybody else. This is from inspiration, and it says, this is where the focus needs to be of God's people. Why? Because there's nobody else giving this warning message, and if the world's going to hear it, they've got to hear it from somebody, and that somebody is you and me. <clears throat> and so we, we, we looked last night at Jesus' prediction in Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness unto all the nations, and then the end will come. And then we went to Revelation 14, and we saw the gospel being depicted by, as, as an angel flying in the midst of heaven, having this everlasting gospel to proclaim to all of those who dwell on the earth, every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. The very same thing Jesus said would happen. Now, we didn't go far enough in Revelation 14 to see in verses... 14 and onward, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with a sharp sickle in his hand. That, that's the end coming. That's, that's what Matthew said would happen. This gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness unto all the nations, and the end will come. We see the fulfillment in Revelation. And that gospel message in Revelation is a unique message. It includes a judgment hour message. It includes a warning against Babylon in her fall. And it talks about the danger of receiving the mark of the beast. Now, what I said last night, we're going to continue on doing tonight, is I, I wanted to try to grasp the significance, the practical significance of these messages for us today. Uh, just reviewing last night, we talked about the first angel's message and how it was first proclaimed in the great second advent movement of 1840 to 1844. That's when it was first proclaimed. At that time... They didn't understand the subject of the heavenly sanctuary. And so the judgment hour to them was a message of Christ's soon coming. You remember that? And the need to be ready for that coming. It led them to examine their personal relationships with Christ and make a full and total commitment to him. 
Okay, And that is the same effect that that message should have on those of us today. This is in harmony with what we would call the afflicting of the soul that the Bible says was a part of the anti-typical Day of Atonement in the Old Testament times. They were to search their heart and review their standing with God. Why? Because the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And there are times when we can think we're in perfect harmony with God when we're not. Isn't that true? One of the most alarming and, and, and amazing, in a strange sort of way, stories in the Bible is the story of King David's adultery. You remember this story? Where, where King David, a man after God's own heart, got sidetracked by the enemy, slept with another man's wife, and then in order to cover up the crime, had that man put on the front lines and murdered. Then David took that woman in to be his wife, and for an entire year... Walked about his palace as if nothing had gone wrong. That's how darkened you can be as to your own condition. And it wasn't until Nathan, the prophet of God, came to David, told him a parable. David was outraged at the, the man depicted in this parable until Nathan, the prophet, looked at David and he pointed and he said, Thou art the man. And after that year, where David didn't even see where he was and how far he had gone, uh, uh, gone from Christ, those words of the prophet helped him to see his true standing with God. My friends, that's, that's the first angel's message. That was what the first angel's message did when it was first given, and it has the same effect today. It brings us to the reality that Jesus Christ has entered into the very last phase of work prior to his coming and preparatory to his coming. And his coming is at hand. And we read last night, in fact, I want you to look at it with me tonight again, in 2 Peter, remember we talked about hastening the coming of the Lord, and in 2 Peter chapter 3, I want you to see what Peter says in regard to the coming of the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. We started in verse 9, it talks about how the Lord isn't slack concerning his promise. Verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come as a what? A thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Peter says that if we're living in the context of the second coming, we ought to really be careful about how we're living. Yes or no? Once again, this isn't a theology teacher. This isn't a conservative versus liberal ideology. This is what scripture says to you and me if we believe Jesus is coming soon. And this is the effect the first angel's message had on the people. The message was designed to lead God's people to see their true condition and return to the true worship of him who made the heavens, the earth, the, 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 the sea, and the springs of water. And this is how it's worded in that first angel's message. We looked at this last night, great controversy says the first angel's message of Revelation 14 announcing the hour of God's judgment and calling upon men to fear and worship him was designed to do what? Separate the professed people of God from the corrupting influences of the world and to arouse them to see their true condition of worldliness and backsliding. And such as it was with King David and so it is with you and me and with anybody else, we can get caught up in the things of the world and drawn away from Christ. And when we're drawn away from Christ, it's not going to be a good situation when he comes again. And so before he comes, he wants to draw us back. And I praise him for that. Now tonight, the message is called, Don't Drink the Kool-Aid. Okay, how many of you heard that phrase before? Don't drink the Kool-Aid. We're going to talk about it a little bit in the context of the second angel's message of 
Revelation. Of course, now the title comes from the tragic uh, experience when cult leader Jim Jones, pictured there on November 18, 1978, led his 900-plus member congregation to the jungles of Guyana, a place called Jonestown, and led them to drink cyanide-laced flavor aid, just so that you understand that. It wasn't Kool-Aid after all, but it's just become a, a, a phrase that we use. So Kool-Aid got a bad rap on that one. It was flavor aid, grape flavor aid, and I guess there were some other flavors. And they, they put cyanide in it, and they had the people drink it. And again, it's the large, largest mass suicide in, in history, led by Jim Jones. Well, of course, the, the, the idea of drinking Kool-Aid didn't get a good... It didn't get good PR after that. The phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid, has come to refer to a warning not to hold unquestioned belief, argument, or philosophy without critical examination. Don't just believe what you hear. Now, we talked about that a little bit last night. We talked about, for those who are here, we talked a little bit about cultural Seventh-day Adventism, right? Which, which is different from Seventh-day Adventist Christianity. Cultural Adventism isn't even religious, you do what you do because that's what everybody around you does. But it wasn't, isn't out of a personal conviction. And that can be the case in any Christianity. And, and probably other flavors of religion as well. But true Christianity is you investigate. You search out the truth. And you practice the truth because you're convicted that it's true. And there's a need for that today. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't just believe anything that you hear. Well, there's more to it than that that I want to get into. And I want to get into it in the book of Revelation. Take your Bibles and go to Revelation Let's go to Revelation 14 first. Revelation 14, and we're going to look at verse 8. This is where we find the second angel's message. Revelation 14, verse 8. The Bible says, And another angel followed, following that first angel of Revelation 14, another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great what? City, because... She has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Verse 9, then a third angel followed. That's it. That's all we get on Babylon. That's all you're going to get right there in this passage is Babylon has fallen because she made all nations drink. She's a great city, etc. If you want the rest of the detail to decipher what's going on, you've got to go to Revelation 17. And in Revelation 17, we get some more information about Babylon that is important for us. Now, I'm giving you the, the historical understanding before I'm going to make the practical under, uh, application here. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. The Bible says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, these are the seven last plagues of God, came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot, or the great whore, if you're reading the King James Version, who sits on what? Many waters. Now, if you jump ahead to verse 15, notice what it says. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Because of our time period that we're dealing with, and I mean duration of time tonight, I want to get out at a more decent time than last night, I, we're not breaking down all of the uh, prophetic study tonight. Now, I'm saying that because I have a disease called analysis paralysis, 
where I overanalyze everything. It's kind of an OCD thing. And I feel like when I study something, I need to give you every last angle. So, because I know when you go out of here, they're going to people say, oh, you know, we don't believe that anymore, and blah, 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 blah. And I want to give you all the arguments. But I bite my tongue tonight because I can't do that. You can get on Audioverse and find all kinds of messages on Babylon and how to identify. I'm going to give you a quick run-through, but I want to make the practical application. Now, when we study this woman Babylon, our understanding in prophecy is a woman represents a church. And there are texts that we could go to for that. This is a harlot woman, which means she's not a faithful woman to her husband. She is an unfaithful woman. Incidentally, who is the husband of the church? We call the church the bride sometimes. Who's her husband? Jesus is. Now notice, it says that this harlot woman sits on many waters, and the waters are multitudes of people. So this is a church that has influence over a lot of people. Okay? Verse 2 says, With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So here you have the woman who is sleeping around with somebody other than her husband. It says the kings of the earth. Well, spiritually, what we're talking about is a church that cares more about what the kings of the earth, that is, what the world thinks about her, than what Jesus thinks about her. So it's a church that is a compromising church. It's a church that is a very influential church. It goes on to say that she's full of names of blasphemy. In verse 3, verse 4 says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. So she's a rich church, having in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Now, I just want to put some things together here. In Revelation 14, it says that Babylon makes all nations drink of the what? The wine. Now, the wine of Babylon is described here as being full of the filthiness full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. I'm going to explain that in just a moment. Now, historically, and we're not the only ones who hold to this, Seventh-day Adventists and other Protestants have seen Babylon as representing the system of papal Rome, Catholic Rome, who through the Dark Ages, way, way back, before there was long before there was a Protestant, because the church wanted the influence of the world, compromised the Christian, the, 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 the biblical beliefs of the church and mingled uh, the teachings of the church with the teachings of heathenism so they could bring pagan believers into the church. Okay? This is just hist- history here, Christian history. And so the church compromised. We know that that church had a worldwide influence through the Dark Ages. We know that that church, and, and to this day, that that church had, oh, verse... Uh, I didn't read verse 6. Verse 6 says, I saw the woman drunk with the what? The blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, this is a persecuting church. Well, we know that about the church of Rome. And it's a rich church, and it's an influential church, and all of these things fit. And again, the idea was that the church had mingled the truths of the Bible, the truths of Christianity, with human philosophies and pagan teachings and traditions. Now, it's interesting that the name Babylon, and I don't know if you've studied this, but the name Babylon actually comes from the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament. You ever read the Tower of Babel? You go back to Genesis 11, and you read the word Babel there in Genesis 11. It's the same Hebrew word throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It's translated Babylon. Same word. 
Babylon was built on that site. And what happened at the Tower of Babel? God confused the language. And so that name, Babylon, means confusion by mixing. And we have in the New Testament this confusing concoction of teachings. Now, here's, here's the, uh, the idea of the cup in, in Babylon's hand. Think about it with me for a minute. When the church, instead of upholding the pure truths of the Bible, decides to compromise and mingle with worldliness, what does that do to the church's teachings? Let me ask it this way. What does it do to your spirituality when you start hanging out with more worldly people than purple? with more worldly people than Christian people. What does it do to your spirituality? The same thing it did with the church's spirituality. But here's the problem. Because it was a church and a worldwide church with worldwide influence, when the church mingled with the world, it corrupted her teachings. Okay? Her teachings were the result of the mingling, right? The wine was a result of her fornication. That's what it's saying. And she made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication, that cup of filthiness, was the corrupted teachings of the church that now because she became compromised, everything she was teaching to others was compromised. This is where we get into the long line of teachings like, like uh, an eternally burning hell. Where did that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. It came from Greek mythology. It didn't come from the Bible. What about the idea that when you're dead, your spirit goes straight up to heaven or straight down to hell or somewhere else in purgatory? That didn't come from scripture. It came from the teachings of paganism. Right? And all of these compromised teachings now come into the Christian church because the church has compromised the biblical faith. Are you following that? So this mingling took place and it had this, the, the effect of making the nations drunk. Now I'm going to flesh out what that means as we go on and make our application with this tonight. That's just a thumbnail sketch of what we understand about Babylon. And so the message in Revelation uh, 14, Babylon is fallen is a proclamation at the end of time that where the truth, the truth of God comes to the world in, in the first angel's message and calls him back to faithfulness to God and exposes the error of Babylon in the second angel's message, pointing out all the non-biblical teachings that have come into the church. Okay, are you with me so far? Now, I shared this last night. I want to share it again tonight. Page 382 of Great Controversy says, The Protestant world fell by the same desire which was the curse and ruin of Israel, the desire of imitating the practices and courting the friendship of the ungodly. This is what happened to the system of papal Rome, but it didn't stop there. You had the Protestant Reformation. The Protestants came out away from the traditions of Rome to stand on the Bible, but what happened? They became mingling with the world again, and now you have Babylon mother and Babylon the daughters. Are you with me on that so far? Okay, let's make some applications now. The main idea here is that the church's teachings were corrupted because truth was mixed with error. I want to tell you tonight that one of the most deadly things you have is truth mixed with error. And I want to really put a nail in this thing because I hear this all the time from even Seventh-day Adventist Christians. Well, I know it's not the best movie. Or I know it's not that, but there's some good stuff in there. Now, something I was having a discussion with somebody about this earlier today, Star Wars. Folks, let me just make something very clear to you. Star Wars is Buddhism. And then some flavors of Eastern religion. And people say, Christians, Adventists say, oh, but it's a conflict of good and evil. Yeah, everybody has a conflict of good and evil. But while you're feeding on it, and you say, yeah, but there's some good stuff in there. 
Of course there's good stuff in there. If I give you a bottle in the morning and set it in front of your breakfast plate and it has a big skull and crossbones on it, I say, hey, would you take a sip of that this morning? Forget about it, right? But if I can take some cyanide or something else and drop it into your orange juice, you'll drink it down unsuspecting. The devil's not so stupid. And, and sometimes I wonder, at, we, we do these portrayals. We were talk, I was talking with one of the students about, uh, I don't know if you do them here. You know, they have these skits and plays, and they make, you know, people, some people, I don't know what it takes to play the part of the devil in a play. I wouldn't want to do it. But some people play the part of the, and we make out the devil to be this buffoon, like, oh, you know, we got, are we going to get on him? Is he so stupid? The devil is smarter than any of us here. And he, he doesn't just wake up in the morning and sitting over breakfast and coffee say, who am I going to tempt today? He's planned on who he's going to tempt a long time ago and how he's going to do it. And not only how he's going to do it, how he's been doing it step by little step. So you poison the apple. Oh, an apple's good for you. Not with a little poison in it, it's not. The devil mixes truth with error. That's what makes it so effective. That was the effect of Babylon. When you go back to the book of Genesis, where were Adam and Eve tempted? Where did Eve go? A tree. Which tree was it? Okay, I heard it there. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. You ever wonder why it wasn't called the tree of knowledge of evil? You ever think about that? No, it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because Adam and Eve wouldn't have been stupid enough to go to a tree of the knowledge of evil. And so the devil mixes the truth with the error. That's what makes it palatable. That's what makes us take it without thinking about it. And just as a predator grooms his victim, I don't know if you've read up on predators. Some of these uh, uh, predators after children and stuff, how they would groom them and prepare them to, to gain their trust so down the road they can begin to abuse these children. It's sickening, and I'm going to tell you something. They get it. The devil does that. He grooms. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't do it all at once. It's a step-by-step process. Notice this statement here from the book Patriarchs and Prophets. It says it was the traitors within the walls that overthrew the strongholds of principle and betrayed Israel into the power of Satan. It is thus that Satan still seeks to compass the ruin of the soul. Notice the next statement. A long what? A long preparatory process. What's that mean? What's the root word? Prepare. A long preparatory process. He prepares people to fall. A long preparatory process unknown to the world goes on in the heart before the Christian commits an open sin. The devil knows he's not going to get you to commit an open sin today. Let me ask you, and don't answer me this question, let me ask you how many times you've been maybe convicted about something. You hear a song, and you say, you know, that's, you're, 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 nobody else is around. Your conscience tells you, you shouldn't be listening to that. And you wrestle with it. And you, you're, you've got anxiety about it. But you talk to some friends, and they're like, man, I don't know what the deal is. You can't, yes, because you grew up in Michigan. That's what they tell I didn't grow up in Michigan, but that's what people say. That's because you had this background, or you had this... And you begin to say, you know, maybe that's right. Maybe I'm being a little bit overboard. And you go ahead and keep listening to it. What happens to you? Next time you hear it, the next time you hear it, 
I'm going to tell you something. Before long, you're listening and saying, you know, I don't know why I thought that was so bad. Did the song get better? Did it get more holy? No, you changed. And you know how you changed? Because it was a long preparatory process the devil went through. Because he knew you weren't going to fall right away. That's the whole idea of him mixing the truth with error. A long preparatory process unknown to the world goes on in the heart before the Christian commits open sin. The mind does not come down at once from purity and holiness to depravity, corruption, and crime. It takes time to degrade those formed in the image of God to the brutal or the satanic. By beholding, we become changed. We're going to talk more about, pardon me, about, about that as we go. By the indulgence of impure thoughts, man can so educate his mind. Who's educating who? What does it say? Who's man? I can so educate my own mind to love sin. Man can so educate his mind that sin which he once loathed will become pleasant to him. But not overnight, yet slowly, as the truth is mingled with the error, and so you don't suspect what's happening. I read an interesting story about the Great Wall of China. They built the Great Wall of China... for safety from the barbaric hordes to the north. And it was so high, nobody could climb over it. It was so thick that nothing could break it down. They settled back to enjoy their security. And during the first hundred years of the wall's existence, China was invaded three times. And every time, not once did the barbaric hordes break down the walls, every time they bribed a gatekeeper and marched in through the gates. I'm telling you, the devil works on bribing your gatekeeper and getting things in that you wouldn't otherwise let in. And he does it through a slow preparatory process. I want you to go to Matthew 6 with me. And I want you to look at something Jesus says here that I uh, will spend the bulk of the rest of our time on. This is really, it's just two little verses, but it's absolutely fascinating, especially in light of what we're looking at here. Matthew 6, 22. Matthew 6 and verse 22. Matthew 6 and verse 22. Oops. The Bible says here, the lamp of the body is the what? Is the eye. If therefore your eye is what? If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness... How great is that darkness? Now, what's he talking about here? The lamp of the body is the eye. Jesus is talking about what we take in through our senses and how it affects our mind. And when you take in good things through your senses, it fills you full of light. That is truth. If you take bad things through your senses, it affects your mind in that negative way. Are you following that? Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about paradigms. Have you ever heard that word before, paradigm, or, or worldview? A, par a paradigm, in fact, according to the New Oxford Dictionary, it says that a paradigm is the framework of ideas and beliefs through which an individual interprets the world and interacts with it. 
Okay? The paradigm is what, I put it this way, it's, it's your framework of, of thinking and acting and it, it provides your, what do I want to say? It provides your foundation for evaluating every other thing that you learn and hear. And you build your paradigm through the things that you learn in life. You grow up, the things you learn at home, the things you learn at school, the things you commit yourself to, the books you read, the things you watch, all of that contributes to how you view the world. And what it does is it establishes that paradigm. We're building that paradigm by the things we accept as reality. Everything we learn, everything we're exposed to, is going to shape that paradigm. Everybody has one. you got people today that say, you know, I'm not influenced by anybody. I'm my own man. Oh, you're not. It is impossible not to be influenced by something or someone. Impossible. Everybody in this world is influenced by somebody. Now, how many of you have ever seen uh, the, the video on the backwards bicycles? Anybody seen that one? Okay, if you haven't seen it, you want to check this out. It's like seven minutes. Google it. Backwards bicycle. Guy by the name of an engineer by the name of Destin Sandlin had some, in, in the place that he works, he had some of the guys engineer as a prank a, a backwards bicycle. What I, what I mean by backward bicycle is they put the gears on the steering column so that they modified them so that when you turn the handlebars to the right, the wheel goes to the left. And you, when you hand, turn the handlebars to the left, the wheel goes to the right. Now, on the video, he's telling and demonstrating. He said the first time, you know, they pulled this prank, and he's like, I can get this thing. It'll take me a little bit of time. Yeah, it took him a little bit of time. It took him eight months. Eight months to, to learn to ride that bicycle. And, and, you know, when you think about it, there's a lot that goes in it's not as much riding as getting started. Because when you're getting started on the bicycle and getting it started moving, you know, if you had some momentum, you can probably get used to the, I don't know, the steering thing. But when you're going from a standstill, you know how many times you might jiggle the wheel just a little bit for balance and not even think about it? it you, 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 when you learn how to ride a bike, all of those processes are going on. You're not even thinking about it, but they're happening. Took this guy eight months to ride the bicycle, okay? And incidentally, again, he was an engineer and he was not a, um, an uncoordinated fellow. That's not why it took him eight months. He took the bike around to different places, and I think he still does this, and he had a few in the video, you can see. And he would challenge people. He'd take a college student, he'd get up on a stage like this, and he'd get, take $200. He'd start you here on the bike, he'd go over here, and he'd say, okay, here's $200. You ride from there to here, and you got the $200. None of them could do it. Nobody's ever been able to do it. And the, perp, the point that, that he made is, there are, it took him eight months. Now, what's interesting is this. His, I forget how old his kid was in the video. I don't remember. It was somewhere around five years old or so. Learned to do it in two to three weeks. And because there's, there, the, the, the brains are so much more plastic, we call it, um, adaptable. But the point is this, and the point that he made, and it took him eight months. After eight months, he, he does, this, uh, he does this, this video series uh, called Smarter Every Day. 
and he has, you know, his over a million viewers on YouTube. And so he went out and tweeted his group, and he was going to Amsterdam, and everybody rides bikes in Amsterdam. He said, you know, somebody bring me a bicycle. I want to see if I can ride it. Now, this is a regular bike. After the eight months, and uh, he filmed it, and after the eight months, and he got the other bike down, he couldn't ride a regular bike. Now, it took him 20 minutes, but in 20 minutes, it kind of clicked, and he was able to get up. But for the first 20 minutes, he couldn't ride the other bicycle like you and I would ride it. And the point that he made is simply this. Sometime, it took him eight months to unlearn riding a bike so he could learn the new bike. Our paradigms shape the way we receive information. They shape the way we receive truth. And the point that Jesus was making is this. When he said that your eye, the eye is a lamp of the body, and when the, you, you, the, the light comes in, when, you, when your eye is good, the body will be full of light, and the eye is bad, the body will be full of darkness. And when the light that is in you is darkness, how great the darkness. The point he's making is this. When you're accepting information and receiving it as true, what happens if what you receive as true is false? What happens if your truth is error? And you've accepted it as true, and it becomes part of your baseline for testing everything else. Now what's going to happen when you hear truth? You're going to immediately judge it as error based on your truth that you have, which is error. So when the light that is in you is darkness, that is when, when you think is true, what's true is false. How deep the darkness? Let me give you an example of this. If a person accepts a materialistic view of the universe, they have predisposed themselves to rejecting the existence of God. They accept materialism as true. Everything has a material explanation. So anything that comes to them that says different is automatically going to be false based on the truth that they have accepted. I want to demonstrate that in a statement that's going to blow you away if you have not read this before. Now, this statement I'm going to share with you is from a Harvard evolutionary biologist by the name of Richard Lewontin. He is explaining why scientists accept some pretty untenable things, unprovable things. You know some of the scientists, you know they say, for example, people say, well, the reason I believe in creation over evolution is, or evolution over creation is because evolution has so many more facts that back it up. Have you ever heard that before? That's nonsense. If you've ever looked at the facts, see, what they peddle off in the textbooks to kids, kids just eat it up. And, and much of what they eat up doesn't have any substantiation in real science. So he's commenting on why there are certain things in science that really don't make sense, but we scientists believe them. Notice, our willingness, our willingness, the scientific community, our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against what? Common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. Oh, what's the real struggle? You want to understand why we scientists accept some pretty kooky stuff? You've got to understand the real battle between science and the supernatural. Now, Seventh-day Adventists, we don't think we have to separate science from the supernatural. We have a supernatural God that happens to be a scientist, by the way, and the author of all science. But at any rate, this is how some people will view this. He says, we take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. 
in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life. In spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories. So in other words, he's saying we accept all kinds of stuff that really doesn't have a whole lot of science backing it up, for lack of a better expression. Why? Because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. In other words, we have committed to believe in materialism so strongly that anything that would say, that would give us another explanation besides materialism, we reject it without even thinking about it. Such as God. There couldn't be a creator. Why? Because I accept materialism and I can't accept anything outside of materialism. What I have accepted as truth, the light that is in me is darkness. And so your light, your, your truth, I don't believe it. I believe materialism is true. Okay, it gets better. He says, it is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world. Did you get what he said there? It's not that the evidence of science is so compelling. That's not it. It's not that the facts are so strong on the side of materialism. That's not why we believe in it. But on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence, that is our prior adherence to material causes, to create an apparatus of investigation. He says even the ways we test information, we created it to produce nothing but materialistic answers. This is, I mean, I, I read this thing and I said this, they made this up. This made it, I got to go find, and I went and I found the article. This is not a hoax. This is, this is where this guy is coming from and this is where a lot of scientists, if they got raw with you, they would just say, look, this is why I believe what I do. I believe in materialism, and so anything else that's besides materialism, nah, 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 I'm not listening. He's going to go on to say pretty much that. We are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Yeah, that's real science, isn't it? That's what you say. Oh, science, they, they, scientists are open-minded. They look at everything. Yeah, right. What he's saying is, because we've accepted as true materialism, it has, it has shaped our ability to receive anything else as true that might be contrary to that. If God himself showed up in front of them and said, look, I'm God and I made everything. Sorry. <laughs> They're not going to accept it. And I know that may sound a little far-fetched, but that's the reality. How many miracles did Jesus do before the religious nation? You'd think that at some point they would have said, you know what, I give in. He's Messiah. Raising Lazarus from the dead, that would have probably done it, right? Okay, you're the Messiah. You raised a guy from the dead who was dead for four days. No, nope. didn't change a thing. And why? You remember Jesus even foretold it in the parable of rich man and Lazarus. Where a man by the name of Lazarus, in the parable, the rich man says, but 
Father, if you'll just send, talking to Father Abraham, if you just send Lazarus, raise him to the dead and send him to my family. And the answer was given in the parable by Jesus. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, which is the writings of Scripture, neither would they believe if one raised from the dead. Why? Because they have an a priori commitment. Now, what does this have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. Because what's happening is the devil working, is working daily to shape your paradigm, just like he shaped Richard Lewontin's paradigm. And it may not be along the lines of materialism, but it's going to be some way or another that's going to seek slowly to erode your faith. And it's not just going to come from outside the church, it's going to come from inside the church. I even had people approach me last night and say, my professors are saying... Now, I haven't verified it, but somebody told me here, one of my professors says that Christianity is just one avenue to salvation. Well, that's an interesting opinion. But I'm going to tell you something. The Word of God says very different from that. It says there's one name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved, and it's the name of Jesus Christ. And I'm not getting into all that right now. The problem is when you've accepted an erroneous paradigm, error actually makes more sense to you than truth does. That's what it means to be drunk with Babylon's wine. I'm not proud of the days that I've spent in my life drunk, but I'm going to tell you something. You can't reason with a drunk person. And it's not an accident that God uses drunkenness to describe the state of mind a person is in when their head is filled with error. I don't know if you've ever tried to share Bible truth with somebody who's a Christian of another faith. You tell them about the Sabbath. It should be so plain to them, but they're just like, oh, yeah, I just don't, it's just so hard to understand. Do we know which day that is? And how about, what, was it changed? You're trying to give all the answers? Why is it so confusing? Because they're drunk with the wine of Babylon. Notice this statement from Testimonies, Volume 1, page 624. It says, as error is most in accordance with the natural heart. As what? As error is most in accordance with the natural heart, it is taken for granted to be clear. Our natural heart, error makes more sense to us. I want you to notice something Jesus said on this in Luke chapter 5. Look at Luke chapter 5 with me. Luke chapter 5. And we're looking at verse 39. Luke chapter 5 and verse 39. Now here Jesus is talking about old wine and new wineskins. In fact, let's look at verse 37 to start with. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Now, Jesus is using this, just like the wine of Babylon represents teaching, to talk about his teachings. And he's trying to tell the Pharisees, you can't fit my teachings with your old ways. Their, 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 their paradigm was the old wineskin. His teaching was the new wine. He says they can't go together. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now get the next verse. And no one, having drunk what? Old wine immediately desires new. For he says what? 
the old is better. Jesus says, when you have taken error, error is more palatable to you than truth. Nobody immediately goes from error to say, oh, I love the truth. Because our minds have been so acclimated to error. This is an interesting statement. In Great Controversy 388, it says, Were it not that the world is hopelessly intoxicated with the wine of Babylon, multitudes would be convicted and converted by the plain cutting truths of the word of God. The sin of the world's impenitence lies at the door of the church. Well, the church has been peddling the the mixture of truth and error. And so what happens is when you try to share with people, they're so, people get drunk on false doctrine. Now, I want to bring this home. Here's the point with all of this. We are not immune to what we're looking at. The devil works on you just like he works on anybody else in the world, and he tries to mingle truth with error in a way that's going to be acceptable to you so he can put that, bribe the guard at the gate, so to speak, and get in past your defenses and begin to wear down and shift the foundation that you're standing on. Everything that we take in shapes our thinking. So what should we be taking in to our minds to make sure they're shaped the right way? Matthew 7, and we're going to finish here in Matthew... Actually, we have two more texts. One is Matthew 7. I want you to look at that one with me. Matthew 7:24, you're probably familiar with this passage. Matthew 7:24, Jesus says, "Therefore, whoever hears these what? Sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended. The floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock, but whoever Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. What did Jesus say the key is? He who hears these sayings of mine and does them. Let me just put a plug in for what we call inspiration. When we read in the Bible. You know why I, read, I share so many statements from the pen of Ellen White? Because Seventh-day Adventists believe they're inspired. And what that means is they're not a mixture of truth and error. The sad reality is I can walk into an Adventist book center and pick up a book and it may be true or it may be false or it may be a mingling of the two. And not necessarily intentionally by the author. But I know when I go to the Bible, I know I'm getting true. I don't have to decipher it. And I know when I go to the Spirit of Prophecy writings, I'm getting true. And when I fill my mind with truth, it establishes a foundation that is not something I perceive as true or maybe true. And so I don't end up with materialism down there and I reject everything else, but I'm receiving something that is a sure foundation so I can properly evaluate what comes my way. Because the reality is, you have no safety here tonight in what I say or what any pastor says or what any of your teachers say or what your parents say or what your friends say. 
even if what they're saying is right, because we're fallible and we're human. The only safe place you have to stand is the word of God. And so the devil mixes truth with error, pulls us away from the Bible, and if we are not spending time in the Word, and if we're not spending time in inspired writings, we're open game for the enemy. So when the second angel's message goes out and says Babylon has fallen, what God's trying to tell us is every other system that you could trust in in this world is fallible. It's a mixture of uh, potential error. I don't want to say everything is error that's not the Bible, but that's got to be your foundation. Otherwise, what do you test anything by? I can sit here tonight and you can hear what I'm saying and say, oh, this makes sense. I'm going to tell you, you can have a guy come here next week and tell you the exact opposite of what I'm saying, and he may make it sound really good. Now, what are you going to do? Well, I'll listen to the one who's younger. I'll listen to the one who's richer. I'll listen to the one who's broadcast more. I'm listening to the one who, I mean, we do all these kinds. No, you test it by truth. Because those are the days we live in. This is the last passage I want to share with you. John 17, 17. John 17, 17. John 17, 17 says, if anyone, that's not John 17, 17, I'm in John 7, 17. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them by your truth. Your what? Your word is truth. How many of you heard this verse before? What does the word sanctify mean? Doesn't mean make holy. It means to separate. Set apart. Now, to set apart for a reason of holiness, yes. But I want you to get the set apart thing. Because that's more directly what that word means. Set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. Let me ask you a very simple question. How can the word set you apart or set me apart? I'll just leave it at that. How can the word set us apart? There's only one way. I'll ask it a different way. How can the word set you apart and me apart from anybody else if I don't follow it? It can't. I listen to people say things like this, and you've heard this in the church. Well, you know, so we, we haven't had have the truth, but, but we, you know, I, I grew up knowing the truth, but I didn't know Jesus. Oh, no, 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 no. No, because truth is not a theory. Truth is not a theory of things you know in your head. If you know real truth, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the written word. He's the living word. Notice this statement on the screen. Truth is not truth to those who do not practice it. Truth is only truth to you when you live it in the daily life. You want a solid foundation? You want to be secure against the storm that's coming? You've got to build on the rock. Jesus didn't say, he who hears these sayings of mine. He said, he who hears these sayings of mine and does them. Sanctify them, Father, by your truth. Set them apart. Well, that prayer of Jesus can't be answered if I'm not willing to follow it. It's when I read the word and I say, Lord, I'm willing to go where it tells me to go and do what it tells me to do. When I do that, what happens? I follow it and it sets me apart from those who don't. And I'm standing on a sure foundation. Great Controversy says it is what? It is impossible for us with the Bible within our reach to honor God by erroneous 
opinions. And there are a lot of people who just wait around. I've had this happen as a pastor. I've had young people say, boy, I sure hope the pastor doesn't preach on music this Sabbath. If you're thinking that, you ought to be studying out what the Bible says. Don't wait. Don't hope that the sermon isn't preached that's touching the thing that you need to study. It's impossible for us to honor God with the Bible within our reach to honor God with erroneous opinions. I'm just going to think what I think and I'm not going to search it out. No, you need to search it out. Notice, many claim that it matters not what one believes if his life is only right. You ever heard that one before? But the life is molded by the faith. If light and truth is within our reach and we neglect to improve the privilege of hearing and seeing it, what does it mean to neglect? Now, she goes on to use this word, reject. But you don't think of these words together. Usually neglect is, well, I should do it. I know I should do it, but I, I'm not going to take this. I don't have time, and I didn't get around to it. And That's neglect. I should have done it, and I didn't. But it says here, we neglect to improve the privilege of hearing and seeing it. We always have opportunity to hear and see truth. But we oftentimes choose other things instead. Entertainment or what have you. We neglect to improve the privilege of hearing and seeing it. Notice, we virtually, what? Reject it. We are choosing darkness rather than light. So if I have some, something like this, and I say, hey, you know, I can go out tonight and you can hear the word, ah, you know, I want to get caught up in my sleep, and I'm going to go do my laundry and things like that. And I'm going to say that's the case with every event that goes on. There's lots of events. But I'm saying we have opportunities oftentimes, and I just don't feel like it. When we do that, we are choosing darkness rather than light in many cases. Folks, there's a storm coming. And you need to make sure you're building on the rock. The devil is working diligently every day. So we talk about truth mixed with error. We watch the things we watch and the things we listen to. And the devil puts just little things in there to start to undermine. People argue with me, like I told you, at Star Wars... Look, you go to any kind of entertainment. It's the arts, right? We call it the arts. What is an artist? What is art to an artist? It's his expression of thought and philosophy. You're not going to get any kind of entertainment that isn't getting somebody's philosophy directed to you. Oh, but it's got a battle of good and evil, and there's going to, yeah, and there's got all kinds of other things in there too. And it's slowly shaping your paradigm. And there's a long preparatory process that's happening, and you need to Gird yourself with the truth. Last statement. Through those that have a form of godliness, that's not it, because I... That's not it either. I'm going to share it out of my notes because I don't have it up there. This is the last statement. I'm closing with this. Great Controversy, page 608, says, As the storm approaches, it's talking about the time we're in now. As the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition. Why? Listen carefully. By uniting with the world and partaking of its spirit, they have come to view matters in nearly the same light. 
And when the test is brought, they are prepared to choose the easy, popular side. What are they? Prepared to choose it. You are being prepared today. You're being prepared right now. Fortify yourself with the truth. Babylon is fallen. There's one sure way. That way is described in the scripture and it leads us to Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Commit yourself to spending time regularly in the word, in inspired writings. Let God build that solid rock foundation. Will you do that? Will you commit to that here tonight? How many of you want to say, I want that rock solid foundation? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, I just ask tonight that you take the things that have been spoken and, Father, speak them clearly, convey them clearly to our hearts and minds, not just in way of information, but in, in the way of commitment. For we live in a time where a storm, a storm is coming, Lord, has already begun. The enemy is constantly seeking to undermine and weaken our faith. I pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. And, Father, in saying so, I join my voice with the voice of our Savior, Jesus. And I pray it in his name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.